Welcome to another edition of the Kingdoms Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kingdoms. As always, before we start today, if you have any questions, let us know if you have any questions. They play together, they believe. Um, and here's the verse. It's called the verse. That kid started to say, I'm hoping that we can cover this because I know we talked beforehand that I didn't get to see a lot of it and you didn't get to see a lot of it and we've each seen different parts of it. So I'm hoping we can come together and all of our parts together will make for an interesting podcast. Yeah, it's like a puzzle. Um, That's how I feel right now. Like we're trying to piece together a puzzle. I I don't think we're going to leave any stone unturned, but we're going to try and uh, we're going to try and piece it together. Um, the first thing that we do want to hit upon is a more general uh, thing before we dive a little bit deeper into media day. Uh, and that's just talking about vaccinations in general, um, because I do think that there's been enough uh, saying enough out there. I mean, there's been tons out there that's been a little bit frustrating, especially with the Rolling Stone article recently coming out um, on some of the waves of disinformation in, in the NBA. Um where do you want to dive in here, Caitlin? I mean, I think just the major news as it relates to the Pacers, since we are a Pacer podcast, is that the it was reported today, or it, I mean, multiple people said it, that the, the team isn't at 100% vaccination rate, mm-hmm. that they do have a few, and that they're hopeful that maybe those players, whoever they are, which both of us agree, we're not interested in doing a witch hunt on this podcast. We're not going to be speculating about who is and who isn't vaccinated. That's their own personal private decision, but um, just that we do know that there are a couple that haven't been vaccinated and that they're hopeful that uh, they will change their minds. Yeah, um, I'm in total agreement there. Uh, It's a little bit, I I don't want to say like I, I, we'll we'll dive into that a little bit more too about just general frustration with this, but um, as more and more has come out, as almost every team in the NBA is having their, their media day today, um, there are a lot of teams that are 100% vaccinated or will be within the next week or so um, as they fi- finish up final second doses. Um, I mean, it's just been frustrating with a lot of the stuff coming out because I, I do just want to say first and foremost, like I've had a lot of conversations about this with people. Of course, I'm not a doctor. You and I, I mean, neither of us are going to claim that we're experts at anything, I think, most of the time. Um, But it's just like, well, I I do acknowledge that everyone is coming from a different background and understanding with things. Uh, I I know that not everyone is going to have the same feelings about things that that I do or have the same life experiences that I do that lead me to um, be as as positive with with medicine and and everything in that in general. Like, I, I understand that people do have uh, concerns and misgivings, but I also think at the same time, some some of the stuff that has been put out there has been extremely disingenuous and just not correct, um, which has been really frustrating to see, uh, especially the stuff that I don't, I don't want to just completely pile on Kyrie Irving, but um, making this a, about, you know, your own, this is your own personal decision. Like it's very private, like, okay, well, I don't think it's that simple. This is, this doesn't just relate to you. This isn't just about one person. Like you not getting vaccinated doesn't just impact you. This is about other people. Um, And I just don't, I, I, I really struggle with the, uh, some of the way that things are being framed uh, today and just in in general in the way that, that we're talking about it. 
Well, right. And I think, I mean, I tweeted this on Saturday to various responses, which is fine. I mean, I made it my, what I put out there, a matter of public, so people can react to it. Mainly my take is like, I don't look at athletes as my role models. Like they're good at playing a sport. Right. So I'm not going to judge the entirety of somebody's character based on their vaccination status. I don't think that's fair. But at the same time, I do just want us to acknowledge that there are people who want to be vaccinated and who can't be, whether that's because they're immunocompromised or have another health issue or our children who aren't able to get vaccinated yet that are vulnerables that making, you know, a personal decision, as you say, can affect other people beyond just you. So reading that story and knowing that he went to the reservation and didn't wear a mask and wasn't vaccinated while he was around, you know, a school with children. I think that people have the right to be upset about that. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Like, it's just, um, I get wanting to, I mean, having, again, having, having your own thoughts and feelings and whatnot, but I just think sometimes it, it just, you, you, you have to take into account that it's not just you and, um, that, that really hasn't seemed to come into play. And I, again, I, I agree. I don't think that you can come in as simply as, as villainizing people. Like I, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff put out like, Oh, Jonathan Isaac is just a bad person. I'm like, I don't think that like, based on all accounts, Jonathan Isaac is a great human being. And I, I completely disagree with his opinions on things like, and this is less about opinions. Like, I mean, he's, he's come out and was very against a lot of the stuff that got said in Rolling Stone, but also, I mean, I just, it, it's, it's really tough to, to look at this and, and be um, okay with a lot of saying, you know, I, I'm, I'm refusing to get the vaccine is, is where I come down to on it. Um, unless you have anything else you want to add, I think we're, you know, uh, on a, I mean, we can, we can, we can add a little bit more on that, but I'm ready to move on if you are. No, I'm ready to move on. Yeah. Um, so diving into Pacers media day, um, there's a lot of interesting stuff. First and foremost, uh, Banker's Life Fieldhouse is no more. Uh, it is now Gainbridge Fieldhouse, field I believe. Um, I think the best moment of the entire press conference was was Miles Turner, like, looked over at the PR person. He's like, what's the name of the fieldhouse now? <laughs> and uh, I was like, yeah, dude, same. Like, I'm not going to – I'm going to say Banker's Life for, like, half a year before I get used to saying Gainbridge. But um, – I think, well, okay. Where do you think a good place is to get started with looking at media day? Right. So, I mean, the first part that I would say is that they live streamed the entire game bridge half hour presentation with the governor and the mayor and, and Rick Fusen and all these other people. And then as soon as the actual media day was ready to start, there was no public stream available. So I'm going off of just for a background, I'm going off of the media day live stream with Mark Boyle and Pat Boylan, and you were on the PR link for some of the interviews that were there. And then also we have some quotes from other reporters who had Mm -hmm. stuff coming out. So um, do you want to start? I know you talked about some quotes that Rick Carlisle had about like the overall direction of the team and, or how they envision the team being. Yeah, um, I what I thought was most interesting to me was a lot of, uh, you know, trying to parse through what the team maybe thought the direction was this year. Um, I would say first, uh, Rick talked about how tonight they're having a, a meeting as the team, you know, going over a lot of their um, planning and, and, and goals for the season. Um, but I found it really interesting because uh, one of the, the main takeaways I had 
uh, you know, you go through everything that he's saying, everything that other guys are saying. So much is getting preached about being a very good defensive team, not just being like a good defensive team. Like they want to be a very good defensive team. Uh, Miles asked a lot about, you know, his defensive ability and, and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, you, Rick's asked about Torrey Craig and he, he harps on his defensive ability. He's just looking up and down the roster about how important the defense is um, and mentions as well, like, you know, the team, we want to be a team that, uh, that, that, that teams uh, don't want to play against that. That isn't fun to play against. And I actually thought um, one of the questions that was really telling to me was, uh, I can't remember who asked Rick this question. I apologize for, for if if I don't for not remembering that. But um, Rick was asked about you know the 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 first two months of the schedule and how tough it is because the Pacers have an absolutely gauntlet schedule in in October and November. Um, and he didn't give like an exact answer to to what the team would be like, but he did go as far as saying that the Mavs had. A, a, the second hardest schedule in the league last year um, to start the first two months. And they were 14th in the West slugged through. And uh, I, I found that really interesting um, because in talking to Tom this last week, um, you know, we talked about how we, we are like, hopefully the team is 500 or a little bit better after the first 20 game stretch. Because I think if you go through, um, there's about 14 or 15 of those games are going to be against teams that are, are gunning to be in the playoffs. Um, so hearing Rick's answer, like, again, I don't, I don't think that that was him indicating that the team's going to be in, you know, outside the playoffs, but also just, it, it kind of speaks to overall, the entire messaging seems like we want to make the playoffs, but uh, it's just, there's not like, I, I don't want to say that there isn't confidence in making the playoffs, right. Um, but it also just seems like they they feel very much so like a team that is still fighting to find their spot in the Eastern Conference. For sure. And I think even some of that, like even a separate from today, I don't know if you listened to the podcast he did with I did on the sideline guys. Yeah, yeah. The sideline guys. And he mentioned kind of the same thing on there, but it was the the twist that he put on it that I thought was interesting was like, well, I don't like setting an expectation because that limits what a team can do. And, and my reaction to that was kind of like, you know, if you say we expect to be a playoff team and then you win a round or two, I don't think anybody's going to be upset that that's not where you set the bar. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think anyone's going to be upset in retrospect if you exceed expectations versus it does feel a little bit uh, wavering. Like they don't want to put a definite on, whether they're going to be able to make the playoffs or not. I mean, I'm not saying that that isn't in the cards for them. I think they very much can be in play for a playoff spot and at least the play in tournament. But I agree with you that it doesn't seem like they're willing to go on the record saying that that's what the expectation for this season is. And to piggyback off what you're saying, like, yeah, I mean, definitely a priority has been put on the defense and I, I I kind of understand why, like a lot of it does echo the Nate McMillan era. Like you said, the like, you know, defense first and we need to be a tough team and like this gritty team aspect of it. But when Brogdon sat down on the live stream, he's there asked like, do you expect that you can get back to that? And he's like, well, yeah, we already did it. Like under Nate, two years ago, we were a top 10 defense, which they were sixth. So 
I do think that that needs to be the focus because Rick Carlisle then mentioned later on, which I didn't see the entirety of the press conference you saw, that he's like, I know that this team can play offense. I know that we have the people that are capable of doing that. And like, and especially with Rick Carlisle, we know that he can coach offense. He's like, that really just comes down to our togetherness and the buy-in. He's like, we need to have commitment on the defensive end. So like, I think it's coming more from a place, like I don't know that they necessarily see themselves as like, okay, we don't think we can win, like trying to outscore people similar to what they were doing toward the back end of last season when it was kind of slapdash. Mm-hmm. Like, but I don't think they're going to go all the way back to the Nate McMillan thing either. I think it's more about like, okay, our defense is what dragged last year and, and suffered. And we did make some strides on offense. We believe in that progress. Now let's find balance and get the defense back where it needs to be. Like I could be wrong about that. Maybe they do see themselves as this defense first team. And, and if that were the case, I would have some questions about it because we've seen in the playoffs, like we know that Milwaukee shot the ball poorly across the playoffs from three strangely after as well as they shot it during the regular season. But generally speaking, teams that don't have balance and that have leaned more towards defense be it the Pacers of the past or Steve Clifford's Magic or the Oklahoma City Thunder with Paul George and Russell Westbrook, those teams have struggled to get out of the first round. So if that's actually what they're thinking is and it wasn't just getting lost that like, hey, we already know we can be a good offense, but we also, that's why we need to put the emphasis here. I would have a little bit more question about it, but I don't know where you are. Yeah, no, I think uh, I, I'm definitely in agreement with you. I just thought, uh, you know, we mentioned this before we hopped on pod. It just felt kind of funny because it was yeah. like uh, it felt a, a lot like listening to a Nate McMillan press for conference. sure. Yeah, and I was like, you know, this is just kind of a little bit comedic the way that it's played out, or ironic, I guess I should say, um, kind of both. Um, but I would agree. Like, I, I think uh, there, there, there's less question marks offensively. Um, and Miles talked about that too in his 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 uh, his presser. Um, he went after Justin, who was after Rick. Um, and Miles talked about how it was actually kind of interesting because Miles, uh, there was quite a bit, um, or, or I should say, not not a ton. It was probably like two segments, but um, on Miles, you know, potentially getting more featured in the offense. Like Rick was asked about that, um, and Miles was, uh, you know, came out and talked about. You know, one not not necessarily that he wants to be more featured in the offense, but that's something that he's um, kind of hoped for the last couple seasons. Um, and it's starting to make me think that maybe he is going to have more of a feature in the offense. Obviously, Rick went out and worked with with Miles in Dallas for a couple of weeks um, earlier in the summer. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Because that has been interesting to me. Uh, and and Miles too. Sorry to sorry to cut myself off, but like Miles also mentioned, like the fit with him and Domas is not a problem offensively. Like he, he actually, I was really impressed with how much miles came out and openly talked about him and and Domas. And like, Uh you know, he's very self-aware of that. Um, he said, you know, the question isn't what we can do together offensively. Like we know we can both score and we can play pretty well together, but the question is more so how are we going to fit defensively? And that's what we're trying to figure out this year. Um, and I agree with that. Like I was doing a podcast yesterday, um, for somebody else who invited me on and, I feel the same. And we've talked about this. Like, I, I think that they're, you know, and as part of the reason that there is a little bit of hesitation uh, or, or, you know, talks in, in about, you know, moving on from one of them is just like, okay, well, it's not like they fit together extremely poorly. It's just finding the ways that maybe they do fit together. Um, so I, I found that part really interesting. 
I think there's ways for them to fit together offensively, but I don't know that I've necessarily seen it yet. I mean, I wrote yeah. about in the Rick Carlisle articles ways that they can be. I mean, and it's been kind of flip-flopped when under Nate McMillan, their offense with the two of them on, on the court wasn't great, but defensively they held up. So then last year, like, it just wasn't helpful that they had absolutely no one to guard wings. I don't yeah. think it was necessarily about the fit of the starting lineup overall. It was about the hole that they had and that those guys were playing lots of minutes. So um, as far as miles in the ab- actual offense, I mean, yeah, I think that there's ways which I've cited and I've said many times that kind of goes into, you know, a completely separate article that I wrote last year about miles and the one that I wrote this week about Eric Gordon, that there's definitely a psychology to fake it till you make it. And while Miles did increase his three-point volume, he didn't necessarily do it in a way that's going to affect the psychology of defenders. Only 27% of his threes last year were contested. And he did attack some closeouts, but only about 11% of his total field goal attempts were drives. So he's not getting contested out there very much. So it's as when you're coaching it, it's what can we do to get defenders to stick closer to him? And I think that using him like a trailer, which I've brought up many times, but having him run arc to arc, like what the Mavericks did with Porzingis when in the article that I wrote about miles, that's what the Mavericks were doing and having him get little screens where he can shoot those threes in transition impacts the way that defenders guard. And I also think miles himself got a lot better at finding uh, cracks in the defense and seams mm-hmm. from a variety of different locations. And I think there's even more that Rick Carlisle can do with that when the two of them are out there, whether that's, you know, using Sabonis at the elbow and you can run miles off of little back picks at the other elbow or using miles more in flex sets where he can get the ball moving to the basket. Like I, I think there's more that they can do there, but the interesting thing was, and this was the quote, we might as well go right into it since we're mm-hmm. already talking about the double bigs. Let me see if I can pull it up really quick. If I have it on Twitter, Um, Scott had it. And essentially, while I'm looking it up, I can kind of paraphrase it was that Rick Carlisle essentially said that like, and he said this when he sat down on the live stream as well, that they're contemplating different ways that they may need to play differently when both bigs are on the court at the same time. And the one thing that he referenced specifically was uh, what type of, alignments they use when both of them are out there. So he says, quote, I do believe these guys can play effectively together, but I also believe there may be a formula that may be different than today's formula of five out. And that's interesting. That's something that I might need to explore more in an actual post, because that's what I mentioned in the article that I wrote that like, it's somewhat of a misnomer that the Mavericks only played five out basketball, especially just with static spacing. Like you can have both of them at the elbows and be running a ton of different Dallas and Iverson variations with people going over the top that they've used. That's not just having two guys play five out, but him saying that they may not be able to do that with both of them on the floor. Kind of what I take from that is, is you can play five out with Sabonis handling at the top and going into like, a screen into a dribble handoff or into a dribble handoff with a screen. And that works well, but that's not something miles can really do. Like he's not coming off of a four or five dribble handoff or coming off of a pick and shooting in motion and vice versa. If you want to play drive and kick with miles spacing out the three and play five out in that way, then you're not really going to do that with Sabonis off the ball. So I think what he's getting at there is that they see themselves playing five out when it's only miles or it's only Sabonis, but they're going to see what they could do potentially with, you know, four out and one in or three out and two in 
when both of them are out there on the court, which like not to go on a long diatribe here, but if they do see themselves as being like a dunker spot team, I don't want people to automatically interpret that as, oh, this is anti-modern basketball. Like, no, it isn't. The Bucks played dunker spot basketball for most of last year, not just because of like wanting to have a big there or having a big that, you know, couldn't shoot, which isn't even the case. Like Brooke Lopez didn't shoot great last year, but he can shoot like you're creating a gap on the perimeter too. So it's harder for people to help into that drive when you have somebody down in that spot. Like it's mm-hmm. also about just where your spacing is. So I think that's what Rick Carlisle's getting at there, but I don't know if he added more when you actually saw his interview live. Cause I'm just reading it based off this, this tweet. Yeah. So he didn't really get in a whole ton to uh, what he's, he's, how he sees things looking offensively. That was one of the few times that he did. But also, I just really want to dig into some of what you've talked about a little bit. First of all, to everyone listening, I will have this link down below. Your article over at 538 was was freaking fantastic, and everyone should go over and read it if you haven't already. Um, and I think you just speak on a lot of great points because I think loosely it felt like um, Rick pretty subtly hit on the fact that, uh, you know, Miles doesn't get guarded out like he is a great perimeter shooter. Like he doesn't have that same ability, um, you know, in terms of like looking at somebody like, even like as, as, as much as Chris Stapps Porzingis takes from outside and as willing as he is with it, he doesn't even get guarded out that far in some, in some ways. So I think it's more about like, okay, well, how can you shift the pieces on the court to make things look better spacing wise? Because spacing isn't really just about like having guys who can shoot on court. Like that, that seems very basic, but like, okay, well, Miles is, 6'11 he's a good at rim player like in some ways having him in the dunker spot it's not going to be always but there are scenarios where okay if you're four out one in and and miles is in the dunker spot that can do more to draw in a defense or bend a defense than having him out at the three-point line so i completely agree like i'm interested to see how that plays out and that's stuff that i really want to see in preseason too right and then one other one when he was the only other time he talked about the two of them that i thought was interesting like pretty much everybody that came on to the live stream got asked about the rebounding because that's been you know an ongoing issue which really kind of hit ahead over the back end of last season and he mentioned like the way that they might address that is that chris duarte and tory craig and isaiah jackson are all pretty decent rebounders and then he also said which this was a bit fuzzy for me. He was like, well, and we need to find ways to rebound better when Miles and Domas are on the court and like that double big style and that that works differently when they are on the floor together. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I'm like, well, yes, because when they're defending, like if we're thinking of defensive rebounding, like you're removing the team's best rebounder to the perimeter. Like Sabonis is now having to guard out on the perimeter. So he's not down there. Like if you look at his box out numbers based on how Nate Bjorkman was using him last year, he just wasn't as close to the basket to be doing that, despite the fact that he still averaged 12 rebounds or whatever it was. So I get it from that perspective, but like, even if we're looking at it as okay, it's, it's solo miles or it's, you know, whatever, like you're going to get better if you only have one of them on the floor, like, I, that was a little bit confusing for me, but um, we can talk about the rebounding more broadly too, since you didn't actually see that quote, but that, that one was a little bit of a head scratcher about how they were going to get better at rebounding when with just one of them on the court, but um, one yeah. person. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. Uh, yeah. I, do you want to talk about the rebounding now or we can hold? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, no, I'm, I'm talking about the rebounding. Yeah. So it's, it's funny to me because we've, we've hit on this pretty well, especially when we did the bigs pod, like 
I think so much of the rebounding is a lot less on Sabonis and Turner than it seems to be put on. Like, frankly, the wings on this team are just not good rebounders. And it's even less about that. It's more about boxing out in general. Like, you can see so many times last year where, like, I understand. And there have been some people who have uh, been better at at pointing out, like, hey, boxing out is a thing. Like, um, I I compare – it's it you know, they're not the same. But, like, Miles is similar to me to the the Lopez brothers. Like, he's very good at boxing out, even if he's not somebody securing what – you would traditionally think of of somebody who's you know a seven footer in terms of rebound numbers like he is very impactful for the, the Pacers securing rebounds in general like if you look at just like going back like you can see very clearly on, on you know if so let's say a, a three gets missed and there are, there will be like four Pacers within in 10 feet of the rim and where the ball falls and Miles will find a guy but then okay most of the guards and wings don't find somebody to put a body on it's not every single possession but I do think that is a much bigger point of contention for me than, than any individual rebounding numbers. And I think that would have a much bigger impact for me. No, I completely agree. Like that's one of my biggest gripes with TJ Warren is he is not a good rebounder, but it's because of boxing out. Like so often, like, uh, you know, we talk about like getting caught in no man's land about pick and roll defense. Like, that's how a lot of the guards feel in terms of like where, like some of them don't go for the rebound, but they don't find somebody to box out. So you're not really doing anything positive and it just makes it easier for, for, you know, an offensive board. But yeah, I, 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 are you coming from the same spot there? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And I think that too, the other point of it is, is that um, rebounding has so much to do with the way that you set your defense and what type of shots you're going to give up and how long those ricochets are going to be and where they might go. So like last year, if you look at all the tracking, tracking data, no one has ever challenged more shots at the rim than miles. And that speaks to him, but it also speaks to your defense that he had to be rotating over to challenge shots. Because if you look at Sabonis, he's like sixth all time in that category as well. Like that's how many shots both of them were having to come over to contest. So with the high rim frequency that they gave up, they're not going to be challenging that and boxing out their guy that they peel off of to help. So that person has to be able to sink in there and box out. And too often that just wasn't happening. And with TJ, you know, he only played four games, but your point is clear that I think some of it with him is he is very good in transition. Like he's Mm -hmm. very good at leaking out and finishing at the basket in transition. So it's, it's a matter of, you know, you need to prioritize the rebound first, but do you want to sacrifice, you know, fast break points on the cutting room floor? You know, that's a push and pull. And some of it last year with the Pacers, they apparently, you know, when they started dialing up the pace, the rebounding got even worse than it already was. And another aspect of it is they were playing way more zone than they ever have before. So they already weren't a great rebounding team under Nate McMillan. Heck, in the bubble, they were dead last in opponent offensive rebounding rate. So this is not just a new problem under Nate Bjorkran. But when you're playing zone, it's much harder to identify where your matchup is and to get into spaces than when you're man-to-man and that person might be next to you. But a couple of the players did touch on this because that was like the main question that kept being asked. So Sabonis said that like, it has to be a team effort, which is like a cliche that everybody says, but he's like, for him, he thinks it's just a matter of going out there and actually doing it. He said 90% of it is just a mindset that we're going to go out there and actually go after rebounds and make the effort to fight on the glass and whatever else. But Jeremy Lamb, had I thought a pretty like several fairly insightful answers. And he said on that, that like 
he feels now that he's 100% healthy again, which he really didn't last year. He said there was times he admitted that like mentally he was nervous to get into the paint. And this is the quote that I thought was really interesting because he said that more than anything, he felt that the injury affected his rebounding because mm-hmm. he said he was nervous to look up at the ball to know where it was because he wanted to know where the people were that were going to be like bumping his leg or if there were going to be people coming at his leg. So he's like, I was always looking at the people and didn't know where the flight of the ball actually was. And he said that this summer that getting more reps and being able to get back to normal, he feels like he's cleared that particular mental hurdle. Now I'm not going to make complete excuses for him because even before that injury happened, he wasn't a good rebounder. Like he wasn't actively Mm -hmm. looking for box outs, but I didn't think I wouldn't have thought of that as something that would impact you from an ACL injury. So I thought that was pretty interesting. No, that is very interesting. And I hadn't thought about that either. Um, it, it's kind of, yeah, it, it, I'm not, not the transition away from rebounding fully, but it's one of the things that kind of got covered in talking about it and looking more in uh, like, we do need to mention TJ Warren really quick because, you know, a lot got made of talking about the four spot and how that will look with, with TJ potentially out. Uh, Rick's exact quote was um, that, the hope is that TJ will be out weeks and not months. Um, he's had two scans on his foot to, to get it, eva- and it, and, and it will be reevaluated in a couple of weeks. Um, so that's where we're at with TJ right now. He was seen in a boot today um, and is currently not doing anything you know crazy on court. He's just doing form shooting and, and weightlifting, according to that. That was Scott Agnes's quote that he pulled here um, because I did not get to see TJ's interview, unfortunately, but uh can we talk for a second about how interesting it was how the Isaiah Jackson was kind of like the guy who got hyped up a ton um at uh at media day today yes because I think all this plays together like yeah I think that all of it probably goes hand in hand like I did watch TJ on the live stream and he's always a man of few words but he was really a man of few words today like he basically was just like two word answers, like staying positive, um, listening to doctors, but you know, great. I like it when people listen to doctors. Uh, me too. Um, <laughs> um, and, and that was kind of it. Like he didn't provide a lot of updates, but I did think even going back to the podcast that Rick did with the sideline guys that, cause you and I had kind of wondered what the timeline was with TJ or when they knew what they knew. Like, it sounds very much now that, in addition to having these two kind of recent scans and the update and whatever was found there, like they're indicating that they signed Tory Craig with the expectation that TJ yep. could, would be out. So it feels like they've had this knowledge for a while that they were questionable whether he was going to be ready to go. But yeah, the, the IJAX hype was very heightened today, which like, I don't want to completely equate it to this. I said this on Twitter the other day, like who's going to get the TJ leaf award because like three seasons in a row at media day, everyone would tell us how good TJ leaf was. Like they would even be like, he's dominating these preseason workouts. And then we'd never see him. Like he didn't even play. And, and, you know, then when, when he did play, I didn't really feel like he was dominating anything, but um, in Isaiah Jackson's case, when Rick Carlisle sat down at the live stream, he said that that Isaiah Jackson is the best versatile young defender he has ever seen. That's so, high praise. That, that is, is very some, high that praise. That is very high praise. And I mean, he is like, he is very fun to watch when he's challenging shots out at the perimeter. He switched out well in summer league. I do think some of that was 
you're playing against unfamiliar lineups, some rosters that are filled with mercenaries and, and those guys like not to be, not to say that there aren't plays run in summer league. There definitely are, but there is also a decent amount of shot hunting. So ways that teams could have been looking to attack some of those switches. I don't necessarily think they were like, I'm optimistic that he can switch against some positions um, and I want to see more from him. Like I didn't see anything from Chris Duarte and Isaiah Jackson that made me not happy. They were drafted. I, I can't say that, but like a lot of this today, I mean, he was called breathtakingly versatile. Um, at one point he, this was the real big one. He Rick Carlisle indicated that he thinks that Chris Duarte and Isaac, Isaiah Jackson both can help them right away. Yeah. Which like, that's which then leads me to believe like, exactly. Cause within like a month ago when Chad Buchanan did his Q and a, it kind of sounded like, you know, they really like Isaiah Jackson's potential, but that he could see time in the G league. And now it's, it, I borderline thought like, is he competing for a, like a legit rotation spot here? Like what's, what's the deal? Yeah. I didn't know what to make of that. Cause that's what I thought was maybe one of the most uh, significant things that came out of today. Um, you know, especially I, I believe Chad said this on draft night, you know, that they, they think Chris is somebody who can come in right away and help. That's been consistent, but I also believe on draft night, I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but I just remember him saying like, we think Isaiah is somebody who's really going to be, uh, you know, a guy who we want to see develop. Like he's, he's right. got a ton of potential and like same thing in that Q and a that he did with Scott. Um, and that has just been a total tonal shift. Um, so part of me is like, okay, is that because you guys are so impressed with what he did at summer league or is that more because of opportunity um, and the fact that TJ is going to be out and, and now you're feeling that way or I, so I wasn't entirely sure what to make of that. I mean, because, it definitely sounds they're super high on him. Cause I mean, I think Kevin yeah. Pritchard then had a quote later on, which I don't have it in front of me, but he said that he's the most athletic person the Pacers have had since Paul George. And I, I, I can't really disagree with that either. Um, more athletic that, than Victor Oladipo before Victor Oladipo. Okay, that there. actually. Now that I <laughs> never mind. Uh, that feels like a decade ago when it was 2017-18. Oh my god. Um, yeah. No, I don't I'm know. Edmund there, Edmund Sumner's pretty athletic. I, I don't know. It felt it felt like a lot, but I mean, yeah, there was a lot of hype. Um, well, I mean, so how do you, how do you feel about the hype in general, though, or, or like what the what this means potentially? I mean, here I'm going to hype it even further. <laughs> I'm not intending to. I'm just using a person as like a general archetype. He does have some BAM-like qualities, like his ability to switch out. And the, I, what, the thing that I pointed out the most, which Rick Carlisle mentioned the night that they drafted him, I think he is an underrated passer. Like I think yeah. that he does see things on the court. Too. They used him in the high post a lot and ran scissor action around him. And he, aside for once or twice where I felt like he made like the predetermined read and decided where a guy was going to be, he found people, he faced up. And then in those, in those summer league games, the one thing that really stood out to me is they ran uh, like opening sets for him to get shots in the corner from three. And he hit a couple of those. He did not shoot the ball well out of pick and pop at all. Like (laughs) that was more of a struggle. He was okay coming off a screener in spot up situations. I didn't really feel good about him as a screener and then popping out, but you know that he's, he's only 19 years old. He has plenty of time to grow and and get better, but um, I'm kind of questioning like where, like who would this mean is out of the rotation because they clearly value Torrey Craig enough that they went out and got him, you know, aside from just liking him as a defender, but also because, 
it seems that they knew TJ Warren was going to be out for a time, but you also have O'Shea Brissett who surged toward the back end of last season. There's Justin who needs minutes. There's Jeremy Lamb who now says that he's hundred percent healthy. Like, and those guys don't all play the same position, but just looking at like the backup three and four spot, they have, it seems to me that they now in complete opposition to last year have more bodies than what are going to be able to get minutes unless they're like thinking they're going to be playing an 11 or 12 man rotation at this point. Yeah. So here's what really, what's really interesting. Um, unless I, I don't know if you saw more than I did, but there was just not a lot on O'Shea today. Um, yeah. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I'm just saying in general, like we did not really hear a lot about O'Shea Brissett. He got mentioned by Rick once or twice, nothing super in depth. Um, and a lot more on Isaiah Jackson um, and Tory Craig. So I found that really interesting. Like, I don't, I don't anticipate coming into the season that Isaiah Jackson is going to be in the rotation above uh, O'Shea, O'Shea Brissett. Cause I mean, unless something absolutely insane has happened over the summer, I'm not sure that I would agree with that. Um, but also it's just, it is really interesting to look at. Um, and I'm not really entirely sure what to make of it. Right. And O'Shea, I thought I had a good summer league. No, it was like, fantastic. Like, yeah, the, 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 the numbers weren't like awesome for him, but in terms of like, sheer physicality and, and seeing real improvement like oh yeah like the the handle was better his yes. ability to take somebody off the bounce was just way better and he was racking up fouls like no tomorrow because he was just I mean he was processing the game way quicker than anybody else on court he looked fantastic right and that was something that he basically didn't do in the G League or last year in the regular games like almost all of his shots were open he was shooting spot up attempts at a, at a good level but he wasn't putting the ball on the floor to attack and when he did he was like four of 17 or whatever it was and he wasn't good at adjusting his body to avoid contact and I mean you know what I mean to avoid a contest Mm. and be able to finish and what you're saying yeah I mean he was good at drawing fouls there was a few times even came off a double drag I don't expect him to be doing that in an actual pacer game but he showed even more than I I thought than what he was doing toward the back end of the season so yeah I didn't hear anybody mention him and he wasn't one of the people that came over to get interviewed before they took the stream down, which maybe they continued. But before we hopped on here, I didn't hear anything from O'Shea specifically. But part of me wonders too, that like you're running back the same roster as last year. And I'm not saying there isn't genuine reason to be excited about Chris and Isaiah being drafted, but when you're running back the exact same roster as last year, and now TJ is hurt again, like other than saying, making a coaching change, what, else is there to hype but the rookies you know what I mean like that's the one big change that's happened and in every interview he's done he's talked about them a lot like that's kind of the one thing to get fans excited about of like hey our roster isn't exactly the same like we drafted these two guys and we signed Torrey Craig so um I'm somewhat cognizant of that as well but Mm. like yeah he's definitely an urgent an early TJ Leaf winner, which I kind of thought Goga might get that award. If we look at it for what the TJ Leaf award actually was, which as it turned out, it was typically let's like hype up this guy who could use a change of scenery and hopes that like maybe some other team will get interested in him. And I'm not saying that's what's happening with Goga, but Goga stock feels like it continues to trend downward. I don't know where you're at with Goga. He's in the best shape of his life. He um, is in the best shape of his life. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I think that's, I, that's, can we just like, just to explain for the listeners, like a week ago, I tweeted, yeah. I tweeted a Twitter thread 
um, with like media day cliches, asking people to respond to like which pacer would show up in the best shape of his life. And Kevin Pritchard actually replied and said, that's funny, that's true. And then today when he was giving his interview, he actually said that Goga was in the best shape of his life. So we now know who won that award. It is Goga. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I mean, he did look trimmed down in the photo that I saw. So I'm like, I'm not going to say it's untrue. It's just, you know, I wish for his sake and I hope that everything's well with him and his family that he could have played in summer league and we could have a better sense for where he's at. It just, you know, if you're talking about Isaiah Jackson and that he could help you right away and they see him as a four and you're talking about potentially staggering, you know, miles and Sabonis a little more than what they did, though it does sound like they're starting both of them, which, you know, two thumbs up for that that I just don't know where Goga's minutes are coming from unless it's like a night where Miles or Sabonis is hurt or like you give him minutes over the bridge of the first and second quarter and then it's like, oh, we're winning in a blowout, so we'll give him more minutes at the end. Like, you know my my very favorite rotation that happened last year? And I, I'm, I'm sure you'll remember this exact game because I remember you and I both complained about it afterwards. Um, when Goga got, I believe it was 47 seconds in the, in the, in the game – it was like around game 20 against the Orlando Magic. Um, he hadn't played in like 10 games. And they're like, oh, we'll just throw him in at the end of the second quarter against Orlando. And that was all he played. <laughs> and like, that's, uh, yeah, I just, uh, like, I think again, like this has been a theme the entire summer as things have transpired. Um, the roster in some ways almost feels like a, a student who is trying to take way too many classes at the same time and can't pay attention to all of them to the same extent. Um, like I, I am very, like, I feel a lot better about Goga as a prospect than, than I ever did about TJ leaf, but it's definitely hitting stages of like, I need to see some, some stuff happen, uh, early on in the season so that I feel more comfortable about where he's at in the organization. Cause if he's in the same position, like, again, that's more stuff that we'll talk about as the season unfolds, but like, um, yeah, I, uh, oh, I if am he's in the same position bit. again, it'll be frustrating for sure. Yeah, I'll be ready to throw my computer out the window, but um, it, you just need to see the guy get some run. But uh, we will see on that. The last thing that I really want to hit, unless there's anything else you want to bring up. Oh, I want to hit about. on the buzzwords of the day. Which was yes, team, well, here I'm about to bring up team uh, chemistry. chemistry and 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 leadership. Uh, yes. We heard a lot about chemistry and leadership today, sure, didn't we, Caitlin? Oh, indeed we did. And I mean, it's something that we've talked about multiple times on the podcast that like once they made it public knowledge that, hey, we didn't have a vocal leader and like we need a Udonis Haslam and then they don't get a Udonis Haslam. It's fair to question, you know, where is this source of leadership going to come from? And I guess they're counting on the people they challenge to to take up that mantle and, and run with it, which it sounds like a few guys have. I mean, it seems like they were saying that, you know, they kind of expect some of that from Brogdon. I didn't see those direct quotes. I'm thinking it was Rick. Did you see that? Uh, what was the quote? I think that didn't he pinpoint Brogdon as, as yes, being a yeah, leader? Yeah. Yes. That's my bad. Yeah. Uh, Rick said, this is the quote. Malcolm is the natural guy. He's taken the reins in terms of talking about the, uh, the vocal leader on the team. Right. And then I thought it was interesting, too, because when Sabonis came back to do his interview, they asked him about that. And he said that he acknowledged I need to be more vocal, not just on the court, but off the court. Like we as a team weren't like I thought it was very interesting that a few people flat out said that, like, we weren't playing together last year and that we need to stick together and be able to buy into what we're doing for a full 82 games. And I think the general thought where people go when they hear like we weren't playing together means that like 
oh, we were all just trying to score or, you know, whatever. And I don't really think that was always necessarily the case as in that can be a lot of things that can be, we weren't playing together. Three guys didn't box out and one did, and we gave up four offensive rebounds. That can be two guys didn't know what their defensive assignments were and were stranding miles to clean up a bunch of mistakes that can be, you know, that applies to a lot of different things, but it was interesting that they said that like, from a team standpoint that they weren't necessarily playing together and that Sabona said, I need to be more vocal, like essentially in the locker room. And then Malcolm Brogdon kind of touched on that as well, which I guess that will answer where some of the leadership's going to come from. Um, I didn't see some of the other guys' interviews. They may have said that as well. I think somebody said that it might've been Karis that leadership needs to be like, they need to do it as a team that everybody needs to take a responsibility in that. But just as a side note, Jeremy Lamb was asked about Rick Carlisle as a coach, and I thought this was interesting. He said he's very upfront. Um, if something's on his mind or your mind, like he wants to talk about it, his door is always open. There's a great line of communication. He's honest and he's easy to talk to and clear with what he wants. So like that all bodes very well. Like it doesn't sound like that was completely the case last year. So if people feel like they have a better sense of what the on-court product is expected to be, it seems like people would be able to work together a little bit better, but I did want to get your thoughts just on leadership in general, but also like, what do you make of all of the stuff on team chemistry today? Or like, what is your opinion of team chemistry? Yeah. So it was really funny. Um, and there's a quote I want to get into in a second, but uh, the first thing I want to talk about, uh, I really liked how, like, again, cause I think that as, as you and I have both talked about, there's just been this really odd, I don't want to say witch hunt, but in a way it, it has felt like that in terms of trying to find who is the quote unquote locker room cancer in Indiana. And, um, you know, Rick really highlighted a lot of good stuff today saying, you know, as, as much as it is about like, you need guys to step up and be vocal leaders. He's, he, he was very upfront and said, you know, we need to be great as a coaching staff at creating the right environment for leading. And I think that really stood out to me because um, as much as it's, easy to to try and highlight a player or put blame on somebody um just clearly last year as, as we've you know detailed and, and others have detailed as well like it it's not this this was not a one-person thing last year so I, I just I liked that that was put to rest more today one of the weirdest quotes that came out in general today was uh in, in talking about team chemistry and just like in terms of uh moving forward and being in a new stage or a new new phase of your career or whatever um, cause when Rick, you know, Rick was asked about, you know, what it's like coming back to Indiana for a third time and, and getting into a new job after a decade in, in, in Dallas, um, he talked about how he doesn't have any pictures or trophies or anything from his time in Dallas, um, or just in his past in general. And all of the pictures that he has, uh, he said, I believe the, he said 12 to 13 pictures in his office that are all of current players on the team doing like positive things in the community um i just thought it was kind of weird to be completely honest like it was just an odd talking point i'm not trying to like put flame to to rick carlisle or any carlisle or anything but it just felt like a little i don't want to say forced um but the way that it came out was just kind of odd to me honestly like um I, I don't I don't know if, if you saw that or, or took anything away from it, but it it like I don't know. It just it kind of like I was like listening to Rick talk and this was like a two or three minutes soliloquy. And I was just like, I don't I don't really know what we're getting at here. Like 
I, it was, yeah. it was very interesting. Yeah. I didn't actually see that, but I think he did mention some of that when he was on the sideline guys podcast where they asked him if he had any old pacer gear or whatever. And I think he was thinking that like, I don't like to focus too much on what was or the past. I like to keep it in the present and like what I can do for this current mm-hmm. team. But yeah, I, I don't know why that needed well, to be soliloquy. It was very interesting to me because I was like, this isn't like, not to be like unfair, but I was just like, you know, this isn't like JV team. Like I go to coach's office and I see my my heroes in there or anything. Like <laughs> these guys are in their 20s. Yeah. Like, no, I totally I don't care what, what, what pictures you have in your office. So it was just, to me, that's where I, I was just like, okay, I'm not really getting this, but I don't know. I'm interested to know more about that if, if he ever – uh, gets a little bit deeper into that, but yeah. Um, as far as chemistry in general, um, it it really seemed it, it wasn't overly positive or negative in my opinion. Like Rick was asked a little bit about, uh, you know that that players only camp. Uh, Miles was asked about it as well, um, and I mean it seemed positive, but not really a whole ton was was brought up about it. Um, what were your kind of takeaways and and senses? I guess like my whole thing of, since I've heard that they've done that, like, you know, I certainly don't think it's a bad thing to get together, but I don't really know why it's being framed as like this rare thing. Like lots of teams do this. Like I, Mm -hmm. even the Houston Rockets, like go to the Bahamas. I I think they did that again this summer. They couldn't do it the year before, obviously because of the pandemic, but like LeBron typically organizes these things. I think even the year that the Clippers had like some of the chemistry issues, they had done that the year before. So, and then Brogdon even said it was like two to three days. And then they're talking about like how they got a head start on their chemistry. Like, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you do, but it just kind of feels like how much of a head start do you need when you've been playing with these people? Like this is mostly the same roster aside from the two rookies. And at the time of that camp, those two rookies weren't even there. Like, so it was the same exact people. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, and and then Brogdon also mentioned like more dinners, more bonding. And then he said uh, when he was on his individual one on the live stream that like this is a low ego, low maintenance group. We have a lot of mutual mutual respect for each other. It hasn't been difficult. But then he was saying that like this stuff wasn't happening last year, which to a certain extent, well, it couldn't because they weren't really allowed because of COVID protocols to be doing like team dinners and other stuff when they're on the road. But at the same time, like if it's a low ego, low maintenance group, like my question is why wasn't it happening? And why are you all admitting that you weren't really getting along on the court if that's the case? So the one thing that made me think about when, and and going back what you said, like with Rick, he mentioned that like we as a coaching staff need to be facilitators of that type of stuff and recruiters to a line of thinking, but then letting the players be, you know, leaders in this way. But it reminded me of when I was doing the coaching profiles this summer that I did a bunch of research on Steve Clifford and he had given a talk. And this is just something I want to put out there. I'm not trying to be a wet blanket. Like I'm genuinely just trying to understand this. And he says, quote, chemistry is the most misused word in coaching. This is Steve Clifford. It's not about liking each other. It's not about going to dinner. It's about this and this only. How many guys will put winning above everything else? And I kind of tend to agree with that because like there's teams there's we know from teams in championship history and, and I mean, you know, not to equate everything to this, but like Kobe and Shaq didn't get along. They still won games. Like 
and obviously the Pacers don't have a one-two punch like that, but then he even cited Steve Clifford specifically said that when he was coaching there with the magic in 08, 09, that the two best players on that team, he said, never talked. Then when he was coaching the Hornets in 2014, 15, he said that that team went to dinner every night on the road. Like they had lots of people that were very good friends and they were 33 and 49. And he's like, the difference is, is like what he looks for, at least in his coaching is what he sees as team chemistry is what sacrifices are you going to be willing to make for other people? And that could be like, I recognize that I shouldn't be getting a lot of touches and it's okay if that guy does or whatever, but also like, it's the middle of January. Are you willing to be standing up on the bench and cheering for your teammates like during a game? He's like, that's team chemistry. It's not really, you know, do people go out on the road and have fun? He's like, I don't really care if these people are friends, like if they are friends, good. But, and that was kind of what I was thinking about a lot today. Like I know that the team with Victor Oladipo, he arranged some meetings in Miami. I think the first season that maybe the second season, I know Doug McDermott was part of it, but like everybody was there and I think they ended up playing like top golf and other stuff. And that team did have good chemistry, but I just, some of the ways that they were talking about it, it doesn't exactly add up to me when you're saying that like you have this group with all guys that like, we don't have any egos and we don't have this, but it wasn't happening last year, but also like we're building chemistry with guys that have already played together for two years. And if, if we bond more, like, I, I don't know where you come with all that. And not that, you know, I'm saying that Steve Clifford's absolutely right. I just, I tend to look for answers at the on-court product and mm-hmm. like, and not that the interpersonal stuff doesn't matter. Cause it clearly like last year we saw that it did, but also that showed up on the on-court product. And to me, I kind of agree with them that if it's it's more about if, if you're willing to put winning first, the rest of it really doesn't matter. I don't know if it matters if you're friends with people. Yeah, um, you bring up so many great points. And I think what's been in, most interesting to me is, uh, especially in like diving into a lot of the stuff that's been reported, it's not even that guys like were, it, it, at least based on what we saw, it did not seem like it was about guys fighting with each other. It was just right. more like, do the this team just didn't feel like a team for a lot of points last year. Like it felt like a group of guys who were playing pickup basketball, especially down the back stretch of the year. And I think like you mentioned, it's less about like, okay, well you don't need to be friends with everybody, but like there are just like straight up moments where it feels like, I mean, if if you just plop this guy onto another team, would you know that he was a pacer? Like, I I don't mean that in a harsh way, but like, um, it, it just very much so felt like last year, like there were stretches where like, okay, you know, whatever. And um, I, I think it's more just about like, do these guys really like, it, it's not even about like talking or whatever, but it, it just kind of seems more like everyone's a little bit. Um, I, I don't want to say individual because that makes that, that implies selfish. And I don't mean it that way at all, but it just, I do wonder like, okay, is there really that much like uh, what is, the quote-unquote chemistry like and everyone actually talking to each other and like being around the locker room like to me like my implication is not like this is a a locker room that gets upset or frustrated with each other this is like it seems like a locker room where everybody's just kind of doing their own thing like yeah um that's been my impression the last year or two because well yeah and that was the disconnect because they even mentioned that around the time they Bjorken was fired that like well they get along with each other but then when they get on the court that's a different story and to me that's where some of it stems from. Like, I think it's better to do these things than to not do them probably. But Mm -hmm. like, I think it comes more from a standpoint of finding a system that makes sense for these guys that they will buy into. Like, cause that's what it felt toward the back end of last season, that there just wasn't buy-in. 
into what that they were doing. And that's what kind of made it feel like they were playing as separate entities on the court and that they never really had an identity. To this day, I don't know what the identity, I mean, other than Nate Bjorkren constantly saying things like, we want to be disruptive and aggressive. I don't really know what the identity of that team was supposed to be. So to me, it kind of boils down to that. I just, I'm not willing to say without seeing more that like, oh, they did two day mini camp in California and now everything's fixed. Like, yeah. Yeah. I'm in complete agreement with you there. And I, you know, one last thing that I do want to hit on too, unless there are other buzzwords we got to get to, cause I, uh, feel how's the future. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. One of the most interesting parts, and we hit on it a little bit earlier, but we didn't dive into it. Miles touched on offensive usage and like, you know, he didn't come out and say he wants more touches, but he was like, you know, I, I have like sacrificed for the team in some ways offensively. And I think there's a, this general tendency to, for people to say that I'm, I'm just a shot blocker and I don't do stuff offensively. And like, I, I want that to be different this year. Like not to misquote him. He didn't say it exactly like that, but like, that was kind of the general vibe. Like, it felt like he very much so came out and was like, you know, I want to do more offensively. I can do more offensively, but again, like, I just don't know where it's coming from. Like when you look at everything and that's what I'm so interested to see this year and have so many questions about, because uh, I just, the way that I was trying to parse through everything yesterday and looking at the rotation and just the way that usage and stuff can filter out and, I just don't know what avenues there are for, for miles to, to get more touches or to do more on offense. And like, yeah, there could be, I mean, maybe more stuff is happening where he's, he's working off ball and, you know, getting more opportunities like that. But again, it's coming at the expense of somebody else in some ways. And that it kind of all feeds into to, to each other and like, okay, well, how is this happening? Because like you could go through so many points last year, like, all right, well, you have a stretch where Malcolm Brogdon is averaging like 25 for like a, you know, like a, a week or two, you have that ending stretch where Domas and Karras were just on an absolute tear. Part of that is pace adjustment, but also like they were ridiculously good on offense, the two of them. Um, but it never really like, like part of the difficulty of not having like a quote unquote go-to guy is like finding out how the usage facilitates out, you know, like how does that look? And um, I still think that's one of the bigger questions coming into the year. Like, what does that look like? Because miles right. is, usage has gone down every single year since the second year. So I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm really intrigued by that because I wasn't expecting that today, frankly. Right. And I think, I mean, under Nate McMillan, I remember, I think it was one game after they played the jazz where he kind of made comments about making sacrifices. And then just on occasions where it seemed like it was somewhat conditional, like I'm willing to accept this as long as we're winning which like, mm -hmm. I'm not judging the rightness or wrongness of that. I, I, that's just how it came across, which I understand that. Like if you were losing a bunch, you probably wouldn't be happy if you weren't touching the ball. Like that just seems kind of logical, but um, yeah. I mean, I guess I always go back to when you look like, it's kind of like the difference between Brogdon and Karras, like Karras aesthetically, like his game is very fun to watch, but like Brogdon can do more things. So when you're, when you're distributing the ball, it's like, okay, well, there are, it's easier to play Brogdon off ball in situations because he can hit spot up threes. And when you look at Miles and Sabonis, I do agree with Miles in the sense that, and I said this when I was on the bouncing around long YouTube video, I did that there were spots last year in the offense. And I don't really think this was so much because of the other starters as it was. You could tell that Bjorkren was like, this is the set that I am calling and you will run this set the way that for the option that I have deemed it is supposed to go to. So they would run like horns flex where 
Brogdon's giving the ball to Sabonis at the elbow and Miles might be in the opposite corner. Brogdon goes and is supposed to ghost that screen, circle back up, get the handoff from Sabonis and shoot a three. That was the play. But for me personally, there was moments where it's like, okay, I want Brogdon to go set that flex screen and actually set it so that you can get Miles and get him that touch because then for the psychology of the defense, the more that you press other buttons within sets, it, it makes it less predictable what you're going to do, where mm-hmm. it felt like they were very mechanical. So in that sense, I think you can get more touches from him because I think that Rick Carlisle's offense, for one, there'll be more random elements to it. But there's also, you can tell, like more options that the Mavericks more readily hit. Now you're dependent on your point guards and whoever has the ball to actually be doing it. But I didn't really so much blame whether it was Karras or Brogdon or even, you know, before Oladipo got traded or Sabonis or whoever it was. It just felt like like Bjorken called this play and that's the way we're supposed to run it. But also there's the aspect of it is like, sometimes I want to know why do people think that Sabonis is getting the amount of touches that he's getting? Like, it's not just, we're running a ton of post-up plays and I'm not criticizing you with this. I'm just like saying for myself, like part of the reason they were doing as much of that with him up top and you're running like a flip set where he might touch the ball three times. None of those are for him to get shots that's to be facilitating for those guys on the perimeter. So if you only had one downhill option on the floor, which was the case for a lot of last season, you got to run a DHO with a screen to help people like Doug McDermott or Justin to be able to get into the paint and score. And he's by far and away your best option to do that. Like, and this isn't me trying to take any slide at miles. There's a lot of things that he does really well. It's just that if I'm going to be running plays with DHOs where you're running offense up top, or if I'm going to be running stuff on the short roll, it just makes logical sense to be doing that with Sabonis because he can mm. do more things. Like Miles is more a guy who needs to play off of the offense. And I think this would have been the same thing. Like imagine if he got traded to the Warriors. I think he would have had Draymond Green running more of the offense in the middle of the court with Miles spotting up around those other people. I just think that's their current skill sets. Now, I have seen Miles working on a lot of things this summer, and maybe that changes. Like maybe he comes out in some of these plays and shows that you know, he can start handling more stuff and Rick Carlisle trusts him with that responsibility. But to this point, I'm not going to completely blame like the shot profile for miles under Nate McMillan wasn't helpful. And, you know, a lot of stuff about last year wasn't helpful for a lot of people, but at a certain point in time, that has to come from him. He has to be hitting the threes to reshape some of the defense or to get guys not to be taking steps off of him or to be doing other stuff. And if he says he works on that and he's ready to show people he can do that, then that's great. But I'm not going to blame these coaches for how some of these touches have been distributed. Like, I don't think it's just a case of like, oh, Sabonis is our two-time all-star and we're just going to feed him in the block all the time. Like, I just don't think that's what's happening. Yeah. Like you can, it it sounds easy. Like, you know, you want to just like go into an Excel sheet and, and filter out the usage to 100 and say, there we go. You know, it's all set. And that's just not how it works on court. Like things aren't, uh, th- things are organic in an inorganic way, if that makes sense. Like you can't control things as much as you might play call and stuff. Like things just work out differently. So I completely agree with that. And I'm with you. Like I wrote down multiple times, like in my notes here, who's not playing or how are you getting those touches for that guy? Or like, you know, cause they just have a lot of quality players like that. Like in your starting lineup, you have five good players when everybody's healthy. That's just the truth. Mm-hmm. So that is a challenge that Rick Carlisle faces to get that buy-in and to decide where the ball needs to go. And I don't think that necessarily always is like, Oh, we're going to keep it even like sometimes your best outcome kind of like with what, you know, the Steve Clifford quote, sometimes your best outcome is 
this is what's best for winning and we have to have acceptance there. And I'm not saying that anybody hasn't accepted it by all accounts. Miles has, he has taken a backseat a lot of seasons and it might be, you know, we might see him in preseason and he's just taking off and doing more stuff. But until I see that, I think you kind of got to be able to earn some of those touches too. And I don't know that I've necessarily seen that consistently. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, And it's, Definitely something that we're going to be watching for um, because I'm not entirely sure what to make of it. And again, it's, uh, you know, as much as things get said, we're, uh, we're not just, we're just not going to know until basketball happens. And luckily we are very close to that. I think the first preseason game is next week, right? Yes. Yeah. Which is just an, ah, God, what a, what an odd sentence to be able to say. Where did the off season go? (laughs) Exactly. Like it was a a much longer off season than last off season and somehow it feels shorter, but you know, we're here now. Uh, is there anything else you want to hit on before we get out of here? Yeah, no, other than I think that the word count that got hit the most today was Fieldhouse of the Future. Yeah, I'm not sure yes. I know what Fieldhouse of the Future is. Do you? I have no idea. What even is Gainbridge? I, it's I'm an insurance company. Knowing, but, oh, it's an okay. insurance company. But yeah, like they kept like instead of Gainbridge Fieldhouse during that presentation, they just kept saying we're excited. I'm assuming that references the renovations that are going on, but I don't know yeah. how many times they said Fieldhouse of the Future. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. But. Yeah, they said it a lot. Um, so I'm really interested to see what's so different. But, you know, <laughs> I guess we'll we'll find out. Um well, Caitlin, this was fun. I was really glad that we could dive into this and, and you know, parse through as much as we uh, we, we got to see. Um, to everyone listening, of course, I want to hash out again. Please go read Caitlin's article on 538. It was really damn good uh, on, on, you know, just looking at uh, spacing uh, in general and, and uh, well, not just in general, like very in-depth and uh, through the lens of Eric Gordon. Uh, it was I, I can't recommend it enough, so please go read that. Uh, of course, drop us a rating and review if you enjoy the pod, or even if you don't enjoy the pod, let us know. And uh, if you have any hate, please direct it to me at M Schindler MBA on Twitter. <laughs> um, I was, you know, calling out names. Uh, but most importantly, just thank you for listening. Get prepared for the season, and I, I hope you're enjoying your day and just have a good rest of your day. Thank you for listening. <laughs>